Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, our podcast, our choice. Today we have Kellen, Ozzy, Zoe, and Laura. And today we're going to be talking about how we can use Marxist feminism to understand the ongoing attacks we've been seeing on bodily autonomy in this country. We've had episodes in the past about the legislative efforts to undermine trans health care, and I'm sure our listeners are aware of the um, impending overturn of Roe v. Wade. So today we're going to talk about how those things are linked and why it is so important for the right to revoke our abilities to make our own decisions about our bodies. Um, And I also just want to note that these issues also can't be separated from right-wing violence in general. Um, We saw a horrifying attack on a Buffalo supermarket by a white supremacist just a few days ago, and his manifesto is all about how white people in this country are being replaced. So we're also going to talk about how that kind of violent rhetoric and the actual violence that comes out of it is part and parcel with the policing of gender and reproduction in a white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal nation. No big deal, yeah. just combining all these very intense topics. Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to um, share share a quote that kind of ties these things together from a zine that's called Anti-Fascism Against Machismo, Gender Politics, and the Struggle Against Fascism by um, Petronella Lee. The alt-right advocates not only for male supremacy, but more specifically for white supremacy. Sexism, rather than racism, is the gateway drug that has led many to join the alt-right. The basic idea that, quote, women are getting too out of hand is the patriarchal common denominator, and it aligns perfectly with male rage against, quote, social justice activism, which in turn paves the way for white nationalism and white supremacy to gain foothold. And so, of course, this quote's not to say that, like, gender is a more prominent issue than race, but rather to look at how these things are are deeply intertwined and how gender is often, uh, you know, kind of the the canary in the coal mine for white men to get involved in this sort of, um, I don't even want to say all right, because a lot of it, as we'll get to, is like mainstream conservatism, yeah. but this sort of thinking, as, as Kelly mentioned, and we'll get into more. Yeah. And so before we get into actually analyzing how all of these things are tied together, I thought it might be good to just quickly review what's been going on in terms of trans rights and abortion rights in this country. And again, we've talked in length, um, at length in other uh, episodes about what state state legislatures are doing to criminalize trans health care and like honestly just being gender nonconforming, especially as a child. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, you can check out our back catalog. I think our most recent one was gay do crime um and people as i said are probably aware of what's happening on the abortion front since that's been like huge inescapable news lately but we did just want to give a little bit of background on all of this stuff first to make sure that we're all on the same page before we dive into the analysis part totally um so as kellen mentioned um I'm going to dive into the state of trans rights in the United States and want to suggest that if people haven't done so already to like listen to our Be Gay Do Crime episode because it goes into more details on various issues facing queer and trans people around the country. Um, But the main basically like apocalypse fire (laughs) bullshit that is happening right now 
um, is in Alabama. Um, there was a law signed by the Alabama governor, not even going to mention his name, but obviously he's an enemy of the pod, that went into effect on May 8th. That law would prevent medical professional professionals from providing care that helps transgender children and teenagers transition, making it a felony offense that is punishable by up to 10 years in prison. This punishment, which includes threats of criminal prosecution for parents and educators who support a child in transitioning, is one of the more extreme transphobic pieces of legislation we've seen. Um, And then in an order issued late Friday night, May 13th, um, Judge Burke of the U.S. District Court for Northern District of Alabama temporarily halted the state from enforcing parts of the law that would make it a felony to prescribe hormones or puberty blocking medication while the court challenge continued. So a judge made basically um, blocked parts of this law from coming into play. Um this judge found the, the particular element of the law most likely on unconstitutional writing that parents have a fundamental right to direct the care of their children within medically accepted standards and that limiting care to gender nonconforming children amounted to sex discrimination. However, this judge also ruled that other parts of the law remain in place. Medical professionals are still forbidden to perform gender-affirming surgical procedures on children, and doctors had testified that such operations were not being performed on children in Alabama before the law had been enacted. And educators and school nurses are not allowed to withhold or there's obviously that brainworm version of like the grooming stuff of like encourage or coerce students to withhold from their parents the fact that the minor's perception of his or her gender or sex is inconsistent with the minor's sex. So definitely keep your eye on Alabama in the coming weeks because that shit is continuing to unfold, but obviously all of these things are linked into the ongoing medical, like stripping of medical rights for us. Um, And I just checked in on the ACLU tracker um, that we mentioned on the Be Gay Do Crime episode that um, it tracks the amount of legislation affecting queer and trans folks. And there's been over 150 bills introduced in 2022 that have sought to limit the rights of queer and trans individuals, particularly youth. Yeah. Um, So next, we're going to talk about another really fun, bleak topic, which is an overview of um, abortion right now in the United States. So we've talked a lot on other episodes about like state by state bans and restrictions and and how those function. So I'm not going to really go so much into that only really as it relates to potentially Roe being overturned. But as I can only imagine everyone listening to the podcast is aware, there was recently a leaked opinion um, regarding potentially overturning Roe versus Wade. And so this is something that's really been kind of coming down the pipeline for years. Conservatives have been gearing up to get multiple cases to the Supreme Court with with this goal in mind. The recent case is called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization in Mississippi. Um, And this case asked the Supreme Court essentially to determine whether Mississippi's ban on all elective abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy is constitutional. And so the petitioner 
Thomas Dobbs argues that the court should overturn the precedent establishing a constitutional right to pre-viability abortions. Um, Roe versus Wade, as well as Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Shout out to the Planned Parenthood I went to in high school versus Casey or um, that's not the name of the court case, by the way, or <laughs> alternatively <laughs> wants them to reject viability as a measuring tool. So in response, why did I, in response, the respondent, um, <laughs> Women's Health Center of Jackson contends that the court should uphold the constitutional right to abortion because there's no compelling reason to overrule the previous abortion precedents finding such a right. So in Alita's draft opinion that that is circulated, it says that Roe was wrongfully determined and that it created more political divide over the issue, which is laughable, really. Um, but so specifically, the draft says, quote, um, and I did not read all 98 pages of it because I chose to love myself today. <laughs> but it says egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences and far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issues. Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. Yikes. Also, like the 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 purpose of Roe v. Wade was never to like unite the country, yeah. um, <laughs> but go off, I guess. So <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about what it would look like if this opinion does come to fruition. So abortion, even more than it already is, would likely be very tightly restricted or entirely banned in 22 states. And as mentioned, this has been an end game of conservatives for some time. So there is legislation in place to take effect um, as soon as slash if Roe is overturned. And that those have been in place for, for several years now. Um, in many more states than that are likely to move forward with bans once Roe is overturned. Um, there are only 16 states plus uh, Washington, District of Columbia, in which abortion access is guaranteed through other legislation. And there's also several additional states that have court precedent, which protects the right to abortion. But as this shows, um, court precedent isn't, uh, it's somewhat easily rescinded. That doesn't necessarily hold up super strong, um, especially in a lot of these cases with how the opinions are written. So anyway, but I'm not a lawyer. So aside from the like financial and logistical barriers, um, a lot of people are predicting that states with bans will attempt to make it illegal to travel to other states for abortion, although none have attempted that thus far. It's, um, uh, it's worth noting that some states, particularly in the Northeast, are preparing for that eventuality. So I know that Connecticut, for example, um, is looking at pushing forward legislation that would forbid the like intrastate or interstate rather extradition of somebody to a state where abortion is and trans care healthcare is criminalized. Um, basically saying like, if you come to Connecticut to get puberty blockers for your child, like we will not ship you back to Mississippi if Mississippi like tries to lay some sort of legal claim on you. And it's worth noting that like this kind of rejection of, or the potential for this kind of rejection of interstate, um, uh, um, sort of legal jurisdiction on these questions 
hasn't come up in this way since the 1850s in response to the Fugitive Slave Act and Southern states trying to claim escaped enslaved people and Northern states, um, in some cases, passing laws refusing to cooperate with federal or Southern state um, requirements to return enslaved people. So we're looking at something that we haven't seen since the pre-Civil War era, basically, in terms of the potential for conflict between different states um, about these kinds of issues. Yeah, we're all going to die. Um, anyway, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, is the, how is that uh, eclipse in full moon Scorpio treating everyone? Everyone feeling really alive right now? <laughs> <laughs> so also in, in talking about what this could look like I wanted to kind of talk about this idea of like the coat hanger abortions and otherwise going back to pre-row America and um in that sense it's actually very unlikely and I'm not saying that no one will attempt unsafe abortions or that there aren't major risks um or downplaying those fears but a lot of abortion advocates and experts myself included brag um don't predict that as like the most likely outcome of what it will look like um especially based on like what we've been seeing so far in recent years particularly because now we have very different like medication and technology than what was available pre-row which means just really like a whole new hellscape so because of the prevalence of abortion medication which as we've talked about before is largely very safe to do at home um and is also pretty easily shipped across state borders um, and currently is legal to do so. So it's much more likely that there's going to be uh, like a larger criminalization aspect of it versus that people wouldn't necessarily be able to have one or be able to like access the medication or do them at home, especially um, in earlier trimesters. So, yeah. And we've, we've kind of already seen this and we talked about this in the episode with Texas that it's becoming more like people seeking them, people who are able to assist them or provide resources or really anyone who tries to assist people seeking abortion will be criminalized versus this idea that people are going to be like getting back alley abortions. They're most likely going to be like able to get medication abortions through like black market um, means. And another thing that I've been thinking about in terms of that is in like looking at my own healthcare and read, go read your insurance policy. It might have something similar. My healthcare, um, which is through my university, um, which is a Jesuit university covers, technically it covers birth control, but it does not cover quote abortifacient medications. And the problem with that is that there's kind of a broad definition of what people think that means. And this has been uh, talked about on the Senate floor. I saw this like video of it. But um, the main thing that comes down to is that people are able to use a lot of forms of birth control technically to do, quote, an abortion. Like IUDs are used as emergency contraceptive um, for up to a few weeks. People take, you know, like several birth control pills instead of plan B. And so it becomes like a really gray area. And so like the the legality and the, I mean, medical industry, like my insurance already doesn't cover these things around like access to this is what's likely to be a much bigger issue in the uh, modern day, no row America. 
Yeah. And it it's also worth noting that the draft that was leaked that Alito wrote puts the Supreme Court cases that um, determined that people have a right to seek um, birth control, sort of regardless of their marital status, is um, sort of uh, fatally undermined, basically, by the the ruling if it does come down the way that it was written, the way that it was leaked. So that is, I think, very much tied into what we're going to be talking about more today about the way that bodies are being policed. So now that we've kind of covered what's happening, we want to get into how these things are all connected. And I think the biggest thing that stands out for me is that there's this increasing effort to force people into these biologically confined reproductive roles. Um, The people who are being targeted here, which are queer people, trans people, and even cis women who just don't want to be baby machines, every single one of those groups, and of, of course, their interlocking circles, undermine the functioning of a system that seeks to redistribute power upward to men and specifically straight cis men and specifically straight cis white men and specifically wealthy straight cis white men. Um, And I've talked about this before, but when something horrifying happens, like something that seems almost unbelievable, um, like, for example, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, although, of course, for some of us, it doesn't necessarily um, seem unbelievable. Like, the first thing that you really need to do is ask yourself, like, okay, who benefits materially from this? Like, what purposes does this development serve in terms of distributing power in our society? And like, this to me is the basis of thinking like a Marxist. So for conservatives who want to maintain a hierarchy that puts a white bourgeois class at the top, it is imperative that the cisgender heterosexual nuclear family continues to exist with men at the head and women in a lesser position. And in this context, giving birth keeps women dependent on male providers. Even if women are in the public workplace, like studies consistently show that they're at a disadvantage when they return after childbirth. And childbirth also ties women more more tightly to the domestic arena and to reproductive labor in the household, leaving men to engage in the public sphere, which again is how conservatives want it. And I'm saying women and men here because it is their desire to force everybody into those two buckets and specifically like the buckets that you were assigned at birth. Yeah. So I just wanted to jump in here and talk more about the connection with the nuclear family and reproductive labor So something that I find really compelling as a scholar of feminist theory, Bragg, master of gender, (laughs) is that historically speaking, being against the institution of marriage is something that essentially all breeds of feminists, brands of feminists, sex, whatever the fuck, um, have agreed on, like even libs um, and definitely Marxist and materialist feminists. And like, you know, it's bad when the libs are agreeing. So just a disclaimer, like this part about theory is going to be pretty binary, but that's purposely what nuclear family and reproductive labor is built on. So rest assured, we'll address that more after. So utilizing marriage to oppress women has been present literally as far back as ancient Rome. Um, Frederick Engels, who you may know as Marxist, best bro, his BFF, his bestie. <laughs> his coven wrote in the origins of private property that the original definition of the word family referred to um, a man's slaves. The, the stem comes from the Latin root, Latin root famulus, which means domestic slaves, and familia, meaning the total number of slaves that one man owned. 
And so over time, the Romans adapted this term to denote a social unit whose head ruler, a man, owned his wife, his children, and his actual slaves. So this speaks to the true talent of patriarchy, which is really its ability to transcend all of the modes of production that we've seen since then. And he's now in a very loving relationship with capitalism. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how, how that came to be. So going back to Silvia Federici, um, who, of course, wrote about uh, how this is related to capital accumulation. So the oppression of, quote, women was used to um, advance society in the sense of guided into capitalism. So with land privatization came the torture and terrorization and murder of women who were perceived to be like, quote, witches. So persecuting witches was an effective tool for the economic and social privatization. And this essentially meant um, any woman who resisted their own oppression. So witches were seen as people who were overly sexual, had children of wedlock, were argumentative um, and otherwise showing behaviors that contradicted these like norms of femininity. And I know we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but I think it's really important, especially in the case of abortion, to look at the criminalization of, quote, women um, who stray from the norms of femininity, particularly as it relates to marriage and child rearing. So capitalism had to eliminate any threat to being able to fully exploit the working class. And part of this threat comes from um, women's unique ability for reproduction, which is needed. And I'm saying this, of course, in the sense of cis women, um, as this is coming from Federici's text. And so this is needed in order for the labor force to thrive. And Federici wrote specifically, quote, women had to be owned lest they owned the means of reproduction. And Engels kind of writes a similar idea that this is like the ultimate alienation is the ability to reproduce, that the, that the ability to reproduce became such a liability for women. So you can go back to our Institution of Marriage episode for more on that. But personally, I think we can only really separate ourselves from the root of marriage and the nuclear family insofar as we believe we can reform any other system built on oppression. But I digress. So yeah, that was mainly about marriage and child rearing. Specifically, I just want to talk a little bit about reproductive labor, which is a major element that Marxist feminists added on to Marx's original theory, particularly as it relates to autonomy. And so while it covers literally reproducing babies, it also means reproducing society and specifically the labor force through domestic labor, caring for workers, i.e. feeding their husbands, doing their husband's laundry, making their husband, who is the worker, ready to work again the next day, and through creating the next little generation of expendable workers, the babies. And because capitalist society is built on the need for constant growth and influx of new workers, it's built on the need for this constant unpaid reproductive labor. Um, so yeah, that was just a little summary of some of that theory. And then I think Kellen is going to go more into how this relates specifically to abortion and trans rights. Yeah. Thanks, Zoe. That was really, really helpful. Glad we can get into some of the actual theory behind this. Um, and so just like thinking about all of this and about the idea of like forcing someone to give birth, like that makes a person who does that less economically independent. It forces them into caregiver roles. 
And it reinforces the importance of a nuclear family because of, I mean, on a very basic level, how difficult our society makes it to raise a child without outside help. And this all goes hand in hand with this ongoing policing of what being a quote unquote woman really means. So efforts to force people to identify with their assigned sex at birth are part and parcel with forcing people to engage in these kinds of reproductive roles that are linked to those assigned sexes. And this is all part of an effort to subjugate people that the right considers to be women, which helps keep existing power structures in place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about how trans folks are disproportionately hurt by abortion restrictions, um, both because trans people tend to be underemployed and underpaid and poorer people are disproportionately hurt by abortion restrictions, but also because there's so little research and just like accurate information out there on trans healthcare, which can create this barrier to seeking care specifically for trans folks. Um, and I think we talked about this a little bit a while back on our episode about the fucked up history of gynecology. So definitely check that out as well if you want more information about this. Um, but essentially, many trans people are wrongly told that going on HRT will definitely remove their ability to have children, which is simply not the case. A lot of trans people whose bodies produce sperm have been able to get someone pregnant during or after being on HRT. And a lot of trans people who have uteruses have been able to get pregnant during or after being on HRT. Um, For example, trans men sometimes get pregnant while taking testosterone because they have been wrongly told by their doctor, who they reasonably trust to know these things, that testosterone is a reliable method of birth control. But it's not. And this feels especially fucked up when the far right is using this specter of like, children being quote unquote sterilized by hormones as an argument against gender affirming healthcare. So it's like this specter of changing your body in ways that go against traditional conservative gender roles is both being used to deny gender affirming care. And it's also leading to this increased risk of unintended pregnancy, or at least is tied to this increased risk of unintended pregnancy for trans folks who are able to access HRT and then aren't given complete accurate information about it. Um, And a lot of this information is shared just like anecdotally in trans communities, which means that if you don't have access to trans community, maybe because you're living in a really conservative area or you're young and you're living with conservative parents, um, that just means that there are gonna be even fewer options for how to access this information. Um, And for similar reasons to all of that, there is very little research into how many trans people actually get pregnant or receive abortions, which is both because healthcare providers often just like don't track this information or they don't track it very well. And because patients often feel the need to hide the fact that they're trans for safety and like to receive adequate care. All of that said, there is one 2019 study which found that LGBTQ people are more likely to have abortions than their straight cis counterparts, um, other factors being equal. Another study from 2017 found that at least 500 trans folks received abortions that year, which as best as I can tell from some quick math, that would be about half of abortions among cis women that same year. Um, And another study found that about 24% of cis women will have an abortion over their lifetime, 
and about 32% of trans people will have one. So again, this is all based on pretty incomplete data. So it kind of needs to be taken with a grain of salt. But I think what we can say for sure is that at least hundreds of trans people need abortions every year. And they're even less likely to receive them in a way that feels like safe and comfortable and accessible than cis women are. Yeah, I just also wanted to add, I briefly mentioned this on the um, sex ed episode that we did, but there's also data to suggest that trans people are more likely to choose to do self-administered abortions outside of a clinical setting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was looking at some research that said trans people are about three times as likely to attempt an abortion without medical supervision, um, so just like at home by themselves. And there's also a study that found that trans folks strongly prefer an at-home medication abortion to a procedure in like a clinic um, because it can be more private and probably give you more opportunity to avoid medical transphobia that you might encounter otherwise. Um, But that tends not to be an option later in a pregnancy. So it relies on trans people having access to accurate medical information and feeling safe enough to seek care more quickly because trans people also, based on research, often like delay all forms of healthcare more um, just because they're feeling like it might not be safe to seek care, essentially. Yeah, that makes total sense. And the other thing, the other thing that I wanted to address in terms of the way that these abortion bans and the like bans on trans healthcare are linked is that trans and queer people also represent this liberatory potential that is just like untenable for those who benefit from and want to maintain the current system. They just like it, it's it is too much and too threatening to the structures that protect their power for them to like abide it basically. So if you're assigned to womanhood at birth and you don't want to have sex with cis men at all, but you can just have sex with other people who are assigned women, like that's liberatory. And that threatens the position of cis women as baby makers. But the structure of our society gets even more destabilized if you actually don't have to identify as a woman. Like if you're assigned female at birth, but you're allowed to be a man or to not be a man or a woman, then basically like the whole fucking house of cards just falls apart. So it's really important to the right that that not be an option, which is exactly why they're coming for trans kids at the same time as they're coming for abortion. And why, as we kind of mentioned earlier, birth control and gay marriage and sodomy laws are also probably next. 100%. I don't know why I said that in a word. I don't know why that came out so weird. Um, (laughs) 100%. 100%. like we needed it we needed the laugh (laughs) anyway (laughs) but yeah that was reminding me of of kellen's point earlier talking about looking at like the material reasons for these sorts of like unbelievable moments or at least unbelievable if you don't have a material analysis at libs (laughs) um (laughs) but i digress um specifically i wanted to point to like the quote COVID baby bus and general declines in birth rates and nuclear family um, in the U S. And so as of, this is from the, the census as of December, 2021, 18% of quote households um, are nuclear families. And that's down 40% since the 1970s, um, which is pretty huge. And that's an all time low since the 1950s. 
And additionally, the birth rate in the U.S. was already at a record low before the pandemic and has continued to drop through 2020 and at least through um, the first half of 2021, which was as much as there was information on. But this is due to a lot of things. Of course, the cost of the American dream, um, as well as the further pandemic complications and a lot of people delayed marriages and wanting to have children for a lot of reasons related to that. Um, eco-anxiety and climate change, an increase in the availability of birth control since the 1950s, um, changing mindsets of younger generations, et cetera, et cetera. Can't imagine why millennials and Gen Z just like either cannot access or do not want to have children um, or like be in these like nuclear family arrangements. But anyway, these numbers have been declining for years and that's a really big threat to the status quo and therefore raises the need to police the need and the, the sense of the, you know, ruling class to police people's bodies and sexuality as Kellen is speaking to. Yeah. And I just want to say that I'll get into some of the ways that that relates to white supremacy later on, but just keep this kind of declining birth rate thing in mind as we continue through the episode. Oof, yeah. Um, so kind of even starting to dip into that just slightly, um, I want to talk about how anti-abortion laws disproportionately affect people of color and particularly black people with uteruses. Um, first of all, um, I can get into it a bit as it relates to the white supremacist shooting in Buffalo. Um Redlining is a major factor as it relates to society in the United States, and if you're not familiar with this term, it's when banks would mark off specific neighborhoods and rank them as it relates to their proximity to black people. So I'm just going to use Buffalo as an example because it's the city I'm most familiar with. with. But in Buffalo, there's a major racial divide at Main Street, like how original of us white people, um, and on the east side of Main Street... Um, in particular. So all of the people who identify, of all the people who identify as black within the city of Buffalo, roughly 85% live east of Main Street. Homes in this area have extreme interest rates gouged by bankers. So to begin with, on a more economic level, black people and other low-income people of color are paying more for their shit. And a lot of people talk about these types of things as like a poor tax. Um, And so that's just like already thinking about the ways in which money makes everything more accessible to us, like different communities are disproportionately affected economically, and those have racial implications. And I also want to talk about a little bit more of a theoretical thing, kind of like what Zoe was talking about before, which are the writings of... Henri Lefebvre and David Harvey, who are Marxists that deal with the politics of physical space, um, because I think that's actually really helpful here. Um, Lefebvre argues that capitalism is based on an antagonism between conceived or planned space that is organized as abstract space and the lived spaces of everyday life. He writes, as a result of this antagonism, quote, lived lived experience is crushed. End quote. Physical space and geography is deeply impacted by capitalism and also impacts capitalism in some type of messed up feedback loop. 
In these planned spaces, there will also be less access to things like robust food options, as well as fewer options for healthcare access. Henry and Lefebvre have written a lot about how physical space and even or especially space that we might see as public space is commodified. And in that commodification, there's an amplification of other areas of structural oppression beyond class. And we particularly see that with like amplifications in communities of color. So that was a bit of a Marxist tangent beyond bodily autonomy, but I think when neighborhoods are physically targeted, there's even more precarity for people with uteruses. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really helpful, like, I don't know, additional sort of axis of oppression to be thinking about here, too. Um, I also just wanted to say that I think more broadly, just like the fear of women having bodily autonomy and the fear of queer and trans people having bodily autonomy are very ideologically intertwined from like a right-wing perspective. Um, With restrictions against abortion, um, there's also this sort of like the factor of trans femininity being positioned as a force that's very scary and dangerous to cis women and this desire to quote unquote protect women, of course, with a very narrow definition of women. Um, And then that like being used to oppress all women and all people who can get pregnant. Um, I think it's worth saying that while these laws are specifically targeting women and based in a hatred of women and a fear of women, I don't think it's quite accurate to say that trans men are like unintended victims of these policies, which I think is like a framing that a lot of well-meaning people sometimes use. Um, I think it's really more so that the people making these laws view trans men and non-binary and gender non-conforming people who can get pregnant as essentially gender deviant women, and they want to control that and prevent that just as much as they want to control other forms of supposedly gender deviant behavior, which could include like a cis woman not wanting to have babies. Yeah. I just, I just want to say like, I completely agree with you, Ozzy. I think that's like spot on analysis. Yeah. I also, (laughs) thanks. I just wanted to Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) In conclusion, the official perspective of the pod, (laughs) I guess, The other thing I was thinking about is just like, I have been seeing this thing more recently of like conservative pundits and just kind of random conservatives on Twitter spreading disinformation that's like trans people want to change it from like like women's healthcare to reproductive healthcare or like chest feeding instead of breastfeeding because they want to like force trans women into cis women's spaces and trans women can't even breastfeed. So what are they talking about? And it's like, that's not actually like all of those language changes are about the fact that a lot of people who can get pregnant aren't women. So it's just this weird sort of reversal where it's like using trans femininity as this scary thing to try to make people even more afraid of very normal shifts in language. Um, And I mean, this is also about the fact that a lot of women can't get pregnant, which includes a lot of cis women due to various health reasons. And we seem to be increasingly moving towards this like legal definition of woman that's like person with uterus and ovaries and this certain level of estrogen, which will, in addition to excluding trans women, which is 
important in itself, this would also violently push a huge number of cis women and intersex women and anyone who doesn't fit this definition out of womanhood and essentially like codifying this transphobic idea around what woman means. Yeah. I just, to jump in real quick, Ozzy, I'm thinking as you're saying all this about like Castor Simania, who's the runner, who is a cisgender mm-hmm. woman, but has like what it would be traditionally considered a relatively masculine physical appearance and has like higher levels of testosterone than most cis women do, who has been banned from her sport, which is running um, by international boards including like the olympics um because of her high testosterone rates and i mean that's that's the excuse that they're using but it is specifically exactly the kind of effort that you're talking about to police the bodies of not just trans and um you know non-binary people but cis women as well who don't fit standards of white supremacist femininity because it's also worth noting, if I, I didn't mention it earlier, Castor Simania is a Black woman. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another case where it's like, obviously, trans women have been the targets of all of these terrible, like, sports regulations. Mm-hmm. But this sort of, like, intense policing of womanhood also sweeps up a lot of women who just don't fit into, like, that definition, yeah. which often is, like, targeted against Black women and other women of color. Exactly. Um, Yeah, I also just wanted to like wrap up this little rant just by saying that if you're one of those people who's tweeting those things that are like, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be legal, just maybe like, I don't know, maybe don't do that. Maybe just think about whether that's the most helpful um, like line of attack to be taking right now. I just for one thing, if cis men could get pregnant, pretty much everything about how gender is defined and policed in our society would be different. So to me, it's just kind of like a if my grandma had wheels, she'd be a bicycle situation. Like, it's just not really helpful in thinking about how gender. Is that an expression? I've literally never heard of it before, but I love it. I think it might be Southern. But yeah, it's something people say that's just like, I mean, because the point is like, yeah, like you if you made anything into a bicycle it would be a bicycle but that's right. like not the world that we live in um, yeah. I just think it's like not helpful in thinking about the actual world we're living in and the ways that gender and reproduction and legal policy are intertwined in our current society um but in addition to that there are men who can get pregnant there are women who can't get pregnant and I think framing this in such a cis normative and like binary sexed way only serves the conservative agenda of removing bodily autonomy from basically anyone besides rich white cis men, as I think we've said already. Um, It doesn't really serve what should be our goal as like leftists slash feminists of full bodily autonomy for everyone. Um, And, you know, like that includes like black and brown cis men who disproportionately have their bodily autonomy removed by being incarcerated or indigenous folks of all genders who have their bodily autonomy removed by the U.S. ignoring and superseding tribal laws. Um, There are so many other examples of this country violently removing people's freedoms and control over their bodies. And it's really important to talk about the ways that women specifically are targeted based on their identities as women by these laws um, and the ways that trans and intersex people are specifically targeted by these types of laws. But I just don't think it's helpful to start from a framework that assumes like 
all cis men have the same access to bodily autonomy in this country, or that gender is the only relevant factor when we're thinking about these types of issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's all really, really well said. Um, And so I think, you know, now is a good time to turn to the recent shooting in Buffalo, the sort of great replacement theory that the shooter espoused. And I just wanted to give Laura some space to talk about some of this, especially as they are in Buffalo where the shooting occurred. And, you know, this is part of their larger community. Mm, Yeah. It's been rough out here. Um, It's just very tense here. But um, there's a theory by shitheads out there, which basically means mainstream Republicans at this point. But, um, you know, it's a theory that white people are being replaced by immigrants, migrants, and other people of color. And so Kellen's going to get more into that in a minute. Um, But I just want to talk about the attack that happened briefly. Um, On Saturday, May 14th, a white supremacist went into the only grocery store in a black neighborhood on Buffalo's east side. Um, I already started to get into this, but the east side of Buffalo is where the majority of black people um, in the city live. Because of the demographic makeup of that area, there's literally only one grocery store in that neighborhood. The shooter looked up demographic density statistics and saw that the neighborhood that that neighborhood was where the largest density of black people live within driving distance. He wrote over 100 pages of nonsense, um, had scoped out the store um, several times, and streamed the massacre on Twitch. Oh yeah, and he was peacefully apprehended by the police. And keep in mind that Buffalo police have been in the media a lot over the past couple of years because of their atrocious racial profiling and racial violence. But what else is new? All cops are bastards. Anyway, I was really reflecting a lot on our episode last week and everything that has happened since, and I am just having a hard time reconciling guns being available at all um, when automatic rifles are accessible to these fuckers. Like, I don't have an actual solution other than bombing every facility that manufactures these weapons, which, like, just a quick reminder, all major weaponry and firearms are made in the United States, like, when you see automatic rifles in the Middle East or literally anywhere, they were supplied by U.S. companies. The U.S. sees massive profits due to weapon consumption here and elsewhere. Also, the security guard had a pistol to, and tried to take out the white supremacist, but couldn't because of his military-grade armor um, and ended up getting murdered in the process, um, which is was obviously part of our conversation last week. Um, like how we can use firearms to protect people in these sorts of situations. But yeah, it's very tough. And I think it's really important to think of this incident as a result of like literal mainstream republicanism at this point. Um, This white supremacist did not espouse fringe theories. He found really common writing about replacement theory that are supported by many current politicians. Um, as a white person, I don't have much more to say other than it's fucked up and it's more important than ever than ever for any of us who are white to step the fuck up and call out any semblance of white supremacy that we see, even if it makes us uncomfortable, because being uncomfortable is not the same as being unsafe. 
Yeah, I think it's important to talk about the shooting on this episode specifically because of the conspiracy theory that Laura referenced, the idea of this like great replacement. So there's this big thing in these sort of right-wing men's communities online about how like wokeism and feminism are convincing white women not to give birth or to date men at all. And this makes these dudes very upset. It's like tied in like, with- dudes do that all on their own. I, right. But it, this is, it's tied into like incel culture. Um, but it's also related to this idea that white people aren't reproducing at a fast enough rate. Remember what Zoe was talking about too, about the birth rates having been going down for years at this point. Um, and there's this concern that white people are going to be quote unquote replaced by non-white people in the United States. Like Tucker Carlson gets talked a lot talked about a lot in, in these kinds of conversations because he is one of the biggest mainstream proponents of this concept. He has literally used the term genocide to describe what he and others are talking about as happening to the white population. So we have to understand these attacks on reproductive rights in the context of the panic about birth rates. Like they literally want to make it harder force cis white women to avoid giving birth, whether that be through banning gay marriage, banning contraception, or banning abortion. And people talk a lot about the history of white supremacy in the movement for reproductive rights in the United States. So, you know, we, we on this podcast as well have talked about how white supremacy is tied up in the history of Planned Parenthood, the ways that Margaret Sanger was involved in the eugenics movement at the time of the organization's founding in the early 20th century, et cetera. But shout out to our episode on the history of gynecology. There you go. Um, but I think it's also important to note that the anti-abortion movement has also been rooted in rights, white supremacy. So when laws banning abortion were first passed in the United States in the mid to late 19th century, the logic was, and the American Medical Association released, you know, speeches and papers specifically to this point. The logic that these professional sort of doctor class, you know, people were adhering to was that white middle class Anglo-Saxon women were the ones most often having abortions at that point. And the white Anglo-Saxon men of the country were worried about what that was doing to birth rates. So you in this sense, actually have white supremacists on two sides of the same issue, which is just, I guess, how America works sometimes. Um so, you know, if you're thinking about like the logic of all of this about denying abortions when today the people most affected, as Laura said, will be black and brown people. I also think it's worth considering the maternal mortality gap in America. So this country lets especially black people die in childbirth at astonishing rates. And that's not an accident either. That's a function of structural racism. So one of the things you're going to be seeing is more people being forced to give birth, but really only attention given to the white people who are giving birth. Um, and it's also worth noting, and we don't have a ton of time to talk about this, but you know, in the um, the brief, there was something that's been going around that was actually quoting a CDC report about the domestic supply of infants in the United States, which is just a horrifying phrase. But part of that is not just about the domestic supply of white infants, but the domestic supply of infants that can be raised by white families. So if you think about how this is connected to, for example, the policing of the border, the fact that especially during the Trump administration, families were being separated, not trying to give Joe Biden any kind of props, but at least they stopped sort of doing this, separating children 
children from their parents and actually sending children from Central and South American families to be adopted by white Americans and specifically white evangelicals, that's, you know, um, a, a child trafficking operation. And there, the fact of additional sort of brown children being born in the United States is less of a problem if their mothers die in childbirth. So all of this stuff is connected. We can't talk about any of it on its own. The rise of the fascist right in America demands this like heteropatriarchal nuclear family structure, as we've talked about. It demands adherence to gender roles. It demands the birthing of white babies. And like all of these things are, are tied up together. So I think that's kind of where we're gonna we're gonna call it. It's, it feels like one of those episodes Woo! that's just not really that uplifting. But yeah. I do yeah, I do think that like it's empowering to 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 kind of know your enemy, like mm-hmm. know, not just feel like blind and like how is all this happening? Why is all this happening? Like you can figure out why it's all happening. The issue is just fighting it, you know, and you know, if you want to fight it, we're just going to have to go out and vote even harder in November oh, than no. we did last year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Can you imagine having this whole episode and being like, <laughs> and that's why you vote. need to vote for Ruth Bader Ginsburg Jr. when she runs for Nevada State Senate, oh, like no. whatever. Oh, oh my God. Um, but yeah, I did just want to add one thing to what the, the last thing Helen said before going to vote. Um, (laughs) no just just the the idea of like white assimilation for for brown and black kids in the U.S. has been happening for so long like specifically so my grandfather was orphaned he came from Lebanon and he he was not white passing at all he was brown and he was sent to a boarding school that was called like boarding school for white poor boys and so it wasn't like hidden at all. Like they were like, we are going to like make you a white boy. Um, yeah. And yeah, I don't know. That's just a, a family anecdote. Yeah. But I mean, if you think we about the, the, the kinds of treatment, like that's a, that kind of treatment is what Native American children and mm-hmm. the United States and, and Canada as well. Um, and I believe also Australia and New Zealand, but I'm not as familiar with those histories experienced in being separated from their parents being sent to um boarding schools and essentially reprogrammed into whiteness deprogrammed from indigeneity um so this and then unfrequently adopted out to white families who kept them as children's slash servants frequently um and so yeah this is all part of like just a long and horrifying history um and it's just kind of this is the chapter that we're living in. So, um, yeah. Anybody else have anything they want to throw out before we close? Um, go vote. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt the momentum. No, no. I guess. Of course. I mean, I like this isn't exhaustive at all, but I do think um, looking into like abortion funds in your area Hell that yeah. you can donate to or volunteer with is a great um, place to look. Being a clinic escort, voting, you know, yeah, yes. Yeah. But doing, I think doing like clinic escort work, um, getting involved, like with the, both either, even if you can't get physically involved with something, giving money, if you have extra money to abortion funds, um, to funds for trans healthcare. I think those are all things that can be done. Um, 
Yeah. If you have, you know, any any money left over after giving to those certainly more important causes, you can always throw some our way. We are at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Um, we're in the midst of our summer trans horror film series that Ozzy is leading, which is very exciting. And you can watch movies with us all summer long um, if you become a Patreon supporter. So definitely check that out. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Um, you can send us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, you know, wherever you're listening to this. And, uh, you know, hopefully next week will be a little bit more uplifting. Well, at least be more action. I don't know that it will I be. think next week. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Love you. We're here. We're here in hell with you. Yeah, <laughs> truly. So true. Oh, God. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch.